Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the vessel of prayer, by the power of your spirit, we can be heard. And it is only by the work of your son as empowered through your spirit that we can be heard. We're so glad that the veil has been torn and we can enter in. So God, teach us this morning to be aware of false gospels and make us enjoy the true gospel. And cause us, Father, to delight and have no confidence in the flesh, but only in Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, This year marks the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, We're going to be celebrating that as a church later this year in the the, uh, month of October as we'll go through a short series there. But uh, by all accounts, the Reformation changed the world. Uh, And the year in which it began to change was in the year 1517. Uh, A Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther heard of a man that was selling indulgences in a nearby town of his. Indulgences were something that the Catholic Church had sponsored in part to uh, try and fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And so by purchasing this indulgence, it was said that you could make a down payment on either yours or your family's time in purgatory. Now, purgatory was a kind of holding place after death where you could kind of work off uh, some of your sins in order to get to heaven. And Luther saw this for what it was, cheap grace. And so he calls it out. He understood that you could not try and bypass the grace of God by by paying off sin with money. And so he understood that and spoke against it. And he sat down on uh, and uh, wrote what what is now famous called his 95 Thesis. He wrote that and nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg on October the 31st, otherwise known as All Hallows' Eve. We call it Halloween. Uh, He wrote that there to set up this sort of uh, claim against what was being taught in in these selling of indulgences. And the first of those 95 theses read as following. The first of these 95 theses read this. When our Lord and Master Christ said, Repent. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, the reason why that Luther thought it necessary to highlight repentance at the very beginning was because he knew that if Christ really did atone for sin, nothing else could, including money. So grace, in other words, could not be merited, could not be earned, could not be purchased since it was finished by Christ. Grace could only be received. And so our response is only to turn from sin and believe Christ for salvation and not attempt to merit it through works. And so this is a fitting way to introduce our text for this morning here as we continue our series to the book of Philippians. So Luther and the reformers that came before him and the reformers that came after him could have used these verses here in chapter 3 as a kind of linchpin to kind of go after what they were discussing at that time to what many people were burned for or drowned to death in order to make clear. Namely, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, and not by any works of our own. And so that's what we're going to see here in our passage this morning. Let me read for us Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so here Paul makes a pivot in the letter and he does so by making a stark contrast between religion and righteousness. Contrast between religion and righteousness. Verse 2 represents empty religion. Verse 3 represents grace-filled righteousness. And verse 1 is the lead-in to these points. So when he says rejoice in the Lord, Paul is preempting or getting them ready for what he's about to say. Joy, as we have seen, is a major theme through this letter. And it's because Paul wants them to see that whatever infighting, whatever disagreements that may exist, they needn't exist because they always have reason to have joy in the Lord. Always have reason for that because we who are in Christ have tapped into the fullness of joy. And nothing and no one can take that away from the redeemed. And the more he speaks here, the more this will begin to make sense. And I also love what he mentions there in that second half of verse 1 when he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. See, Paul is saying there, I realize you understand all that I'm about to tell you, but it doesn't bother me to tell it to you again. And you know what? It's good for you. It's safe for you to just hear it over and over and over again. I think it's one of the most, uh, one of the greatest pastoral lessons I've learned in these eight years of being a pastor is, Joey and I thought in those early years, if we just said something or preached something, then it was all going to be done by you guys. Uh, but when in fact, what we've learned, we've got to say these things over and over and over and over and over and over again. So just keep in mind, beloved, when we start talking about Christ and his gospel, this is something that we have to hear over and over again. So when you begin to hear the gospel and you hear that and think, I sort of know that or I sort of assume that, don't. It's no trouble to me. Uh, and it's good for you to explain this gospel over and over again. And you may ask, why is it good to hear that over and over again? Well, because false gospels subtly lurk around every corner of our hearts. And they lurk in the TV shows that we watch, in the movies that we watch, the advertisements, the songs, the articles we read, the books we read, the blog posts, the podcasts. They lurk in all of those places. So we have to be attentive. They seek to devour you and to take you down by enslaving you to your own passions instead of enslaving you to the true and better gospel, the passion of Christ. So first point there in verse 2, look out for those that oppose the gospel. Look out for those that oppose the gospel. Now, if you're a little jarred by, jarred by the strength of Paul's words there, uh, then you're beginning to get his point. So if you're not jarred by those words, then you might not be getting his point. So when he says dogs, evildoers, those that mutilate the flesh, Paul is holding no punches back here. He is using strong language in order to wake them up and pique their interest to the severity of those that oppose the gospel. It's that important. The gospel is that important. The precision of the gospel is that important. So this language, I think, jars us as it would have jarred them because Because we have been led to believe, I think we in our day have been led to believe that theological differences are no big deal. It's not a big deal. So the water that we swim in today trains us to minimize theological differences in favor of being what's called more tolerant. So you can see this on that uh, bumper sticker that's on many cars in our city. This bumper sticker that says tolerance. And on that bumper sticker, in each of the letters, they are adorned with a different world religions. The cross of Christ makes up the T, for instance. And the idea behind those bumper stickers, I should say, is often not that we should respect one another in light of our differences. That's the historic definition, and that would be true. It would be true. 
The new definition of tolerance has changed the word to mean that we need to affirm the truthfulness of all world religions and all viewpoints. And so, for example, for us to say, for instance, that the Baha'i faith is wrong about Jesus, this is seen as a lacking of tolerance and is in opposition to love. Even though the Baha'i faith does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible, we are often told that we need to affirm the truthfulness of what they believe while also still trying to maintain our own historic beliefs about Christ. Now, this, of course, makes very little logical sense. But regardless, this is what we're often encouraged to believe in our day. So when we read the strength of Paul's words here to the Philippian church, they come across to us as harsh. They come across to us as not being politically correct. They come across to us as even being insensitive. And they come across that way, friends, because they are harsh. They are not politically correct. But let's not forget in these words that these are words to us as given to us by a kind and benevolent God for our good. He's helping us to see, I think, what is sometimes difficult to see. Namely, that those that teach or advocate anything that opposes the true gospel are likened to dogs, evildoers, or mutilators of the flesh. And so this strong language exposes what can often go unseen. Namely, that those who oppose the gospel are in a place of judgment by God. Now, how do I know that that's what he's saying? How do I know that this language there in verse 2 is talking about those that oppose the true gospel? Well, keep your finger there on Philippians 3 and go to your left about the middle of the Bible and flip over to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Now, right when you open it up to that psalm, you're going to notice in the very first verse, a very familiar passage. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are famous words now known to be ascribed to Christ on the cross. We look down there into verse 18 towards the bottom of that psalm and we find another familiar teaching where they're casting lots for the clothing of this one. This, of course, too, is fulfilled at the cross of Christ. And then we note that the psalm ends with a prophetic look to a day when a hymn shall be bowed down to. Posterity will serve this hymn and others will come and proclaim the righteousness of this hymn to a people yet unborn. So this is clearly pointing us to Christ. Clearly pointing us to Christ. And if you're unconvinced of even that, flip back up to verse 16 of Psalm 22 and note the words. They should sound somewhat familiar to you. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So friends, do you know of anyone else who had evildoers and dogs surrounded by them whose hands also at the time happened to be pierced as well as their feet be pierced? Who else could this be but Christ? This passage, like all passages in the Bible, is pointing us to Christ and ultimately to His cross. And so the reason I bring us here is to pick up on that same language there in verse 16 of Psalm 22 of dogs and evildoers. So we have dogs and evildoers that are standing in opposition in the presence of the cross. Now flip back over to Philippians chapter 3. Bring us back to our text. So as you can see right below our verses, Paul was a Bible ninja. He knew his Bible really, really, really well. So he would have probably had the Torah memorized, and he would certainly have known the Psalms quite well. And so it seems that Paul is pulling off this language of dogs and evildoers that stand in opposition to the one whose hands and feet are pierced. 
in order to make his point that anyone that does not trust the sufficiency of Christ on the cross for sins stand in opposition to the gospel and therefore are in judgment of God. Look out for this kind of teaching. Look out for this kind of thinking. Beware of these things, he's saying. Now let me be a little more clear. You see that language there, mutilators of the flesh? That third description? That's going to help us be a bit more specific about the kinds of people and the kinds of teaching that we're supposed to be looking out for, bewaring of. So mutilators of the flesh is a scandalous way to refer to the circumcision. And you can see that you can see that when Paul goes on to refer to the church as the circumcision. We'll talk about that in a moment. But circumcision was a critical teaching to the Jewish people. God gave the command of circumcision in order to externally signal to the world that they were God's covenant people and therefore they were cut out. They were marked off from the world. So you can read more about this covenant of circumcision this afternoon. Go back and read Genesis 17. You can read more about it there. And so after Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law and sacrificed himself for sinners, a group of false teachers began to rise up amongst the Jewish people that became known, they became known as the Judaizers. And this group, this particular group, this particular teaching was a huge problem in the New Testament church. Huge problem. And like we have here, there's plenty of ink spilled in the New Testament in order to deal with this teaching. They were a huge problem because they appeared to affirm the gospel. But they said more. They said yes to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sin. But you also, they would have said, you also need to obey the old covenant as well. So in other words, to put it simply, they were sort of yes gospel plus some other stuff. is what they were teaching. And the preeminent example of obedience to that old covenant law was for the male adherents to be circumcised. And the reason why this was such a huge problem was because such a teaching minimizes the sufficiency of of Christ and his work on the cross for salvation. Such a teaching minimizes the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. So if a man not only needs to trust Christ for salvation, but also gets circumcised, you are functionally teaching that Christ's sacrifice was not enough to atone for sins. More needed to be done. So for instance, if Brother Benjamin trusts Jesus, but still needs to be circumcised in order to be saved, That means that there's something lacking in the cross of Christ that has to be fulfilled by us. And so there was just enough truth in that argument to make it appear as though it was true. Thus, it's danger. Thus, it's constantly constant need to be talked about and clarified. And so the advocates of this teaching sounded like they were on the same teams as the apostles. But the apostles made clear over and over and over again that they were not on the same team. So this again is why Paul says it's no trouble for him to write the same things because it's safe or a safeguard to them because it keeps them from being drawn away by a false gospel. So when Paul says dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, he's talking about anyone that opposes the gospel, but especially these Judaizers that destroy the gospel by their attempting to add to the gospel. And so we as the church... We may have varying opinions, let's say, about church membership, about baptism, or whatever the case may be, but the one thing we cannot disagree on is the gospel. We cannot disagree on that. Paul calls the gospel a matter of, quote, first importance in the book of Corinthians. 
He says in Galatians, dealing with the same argument, he deals with uh, this issue of Galatians. If we add to the gospel, if we don't get the gospel right, then therefore we are accursed, he says. And so again, keep in mind, he's talking about people here in this passage in Philippians. He's talking about people that would have said Christ died for sin and rose to bring about forgiveness. That's who he's talking about. And so there's a level of specificity about the gospel that God wants us to have. Whereas if we miss it, we are in danger of being an evildoer. Standing under the judgment of God. And so I want to be clear here. This is that important. We are being warned here about those that oppose the gospel through their adding to the gospel. Paul does not need to lecture us about those that oppose the gospel by denying its truth. Those would be easy to spot. Here we are being warned to look to those that would appear to be advocates of the gospel, but deny its power, deny its sufficiency by their demanding that more work needed to be done. Which, of course, goes on to deny the very thing that we've been singing about this morning. Grace, the grace of God. And so this is blasphemy because it denies the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. It robs the grace-fueled joy that Paul wants the church to have. And so... I'm sure this question is in your mind. We should ask it. Where are the kind of Judaizers of our day? Where are those that take the name of Christ but deny its power by denying the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross? Well, the easier answer to that question would be to say that anyone that says Jesus plus something equals salvation. That's what Paul's saying here. But let's be a little more clear. Let's Let's read the statements from others and see if it sounds like what Paul is warning us of here. Let's hear. So take this one. Quote, If anyone says that the sacraments of the new covenant are not necessary for salvation and that without them or without the desire of those sacraments, men obtain from God through faith alone the grace of justification, let them be anathema or cursed. In other words, what that sentence is saying is if anyone says that you don't need to perform or want to perform those sacraments, but instead only receive the the benefits of justification, that is righteousness, innocence, by grace through faith, they are cursed. They are under the judgment of God. This sentence tells us that we must perform the sacraments as well as having faith in Christ in order to achieve justification. And if we don't do that, we are judged. We are cursed. And friends, that is a direct quotation of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church as it was supplied to us at the Council of Trent in 1545 and 1563. I realize that when I say this, some of you might say, Nathan, are you telling me that my Roman Catholic grandparent is an evildoer? Well, friend, I cannot possibly speak to your Roman Catholic grandparent. I don't know. I don't know his heart or her heart. But I can say this, I can speak directly to the clear teaching from the Roman Catholic Church. I do think it's possible for a Catholic to be saved, but according to this official teaching of the church, they add to the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross by demanding that the performance of the sacraments be done. Therefore, it minimizes grace and minimizes the work of Christ on the cross. So I'm only addressing the official teaching of the Catholic Church. Here's another one. How is one saved? Quote, faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance and baptism by immersion for the repentance of sins. Unquote. 
So repentance repentance of sin, faith in God, and in Jesus Christ, yes, they say. But did you notice they said more? Also, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. So repentance and belief in the atoning work of Christ on the cross is not enough. It is not sufficient. It alone cannot save. There must be accompanied with it baptism by immersion, and only then can the remission of sins be applied. This, friend, is the, is the official teaching of what is called the Church of Christ. And so maybe some of you are saying, Nathan, are you telling me that my cousin that's in the Church of Christ is an evildoer or a dog? Once again, friend, I cannot speak possibly to your individual friend or neighbor or family member. I can only speak to what is the official teaching of this particular church. We could also look to all kinds of other things that are much easier to spot. So, for instance, the teaching of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, which, of course, is an entirely different God, but they use the name of Christ, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Church of Christ scientists, and there are other groups that add to the gospel and therefore lose the gospel because they minimize the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross by adding to it. But those may be a little bit more apparent to us. Let's maybe consider something that might be a little bit closer to home. So just because you are in a gospel-believing church, that doesn't mean that you might not, I want to emphasize that, you might not be in danger of distorting the gospel yourself. That is, you may be saved, you may be saved, but your additional rules or laws are leading you to a path that could land you into these admonitions. So for instance... I've been in churches where they say that if, that if you say that it's okay to drink a beer, you might not be a Christian. So in other words, adding temperance to the gospel. I've been to churches, I've preached at churches where they think that, it, that you have to use a King James Version only. Otherwise, you're not a true church. I've heard of churches that say that if you are a Democrat, you can't possibly be a Christian. Which, of course, is adding a political, particular political agenda to the gospel. I've heard of churches that say that if you don't back every decision that the nation of Israel makes, you don't back decisions of God, and therefore you're under the curse of God. I've heard of churches that demand your money in order to receive blessings from God. And on the other side, the more theologically liberal churches, they teach or demand that you affirm all kinds of a host of issues in order to also be considered what is right. So all of these things that I just listed there, they are, they are in danger. I'm not saying that they're all there, but I say that they're in, at least in danger of denying the grace of God by adding teaches which then opposes the sufficiency of the work of the Son of God on the cross. There could be a hundred other things like these where people reveal their true hearts through their adding to the work of the gospel in sometimes subtle or maybe even sometimes overt ways. So Paul's point here is to not simply go along with the program. This is what he's looking, uh, telling us to look out for. Don't just go along with the program if they believe in the basic facts of the gospel. Look deeper to see if there are other things that are being added to that core message in a way that minimizes the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work by calling for more work by us. So we are told to look out for these people and to steer clear of their admonitions. But Paul then turns in verse 3 to the other contrast. He warns them of religion, empty religion. And then he writes the story of righteousness. 
Look out for those that oppose the gospel first. Secondly, verse three, look to those that advocate the true gospel or look to the true gospel. Look to the true gospel. Now, Paul, you'll recall, let's go back a few months. Paul began this letter by calling the church at Philippi saints in Christ Jesus, holy ones in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. He said that he thanked God for them because of their partnership in the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 7, he said that they are all partakers with him of grace and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12, he talked about how the gospel was advancing. One sixteen, he mentions his being in prison for the defense of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27, he wanted to hear of their striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He then highlights Timothy as one who served him in the gospel. So Paul talks about the gospel a lot because it's the whole reason he exists. It defines him, it fuels him, it orients him, it directs him. And this local church of whom he is writing to, the one that he helped start, bring about, Grace Church Philippi, these guys have been a key ally to him in the work of the gospel. And so it is only natural that he wants to warn them of false gospels and unashamedly teach them the gospel again and again and again and again because the gospel is all that we Christians have. It's our whole hope. It's the most important thing about us. The gospel is not directions or demands. The gospel is news. The gospel is news of what has been done, has been completed, is finished in Christ. So after warning them of false gospels, Paul reminds them, his brothers and sisters in Christ, the people he calls there in verse 3, the circumcision, which is to say, the ones that truly have been marked off by God. Or cut out. These are the true believers. He reminds them of that real gospel. And he does so in three parts. Something I think we could call the kind of how, the why, and the what of the gospel. The how is by the Spirit of God. He says there in verse 3. The why is for our joy or glory in Christ Jesus. And the what is then putting off or putting, or putting no confidence in the flesh. So let's briefly take a look at those. Verse 3. Worship. By the Spirit of God. Now this little passage right here, this, this is what I was talking about earlier, is how if the Reformers wanted to choose a passage that illustrated what they were after in the Reformation, they could have chosen these five words right here to talk about what they were after. Guys, there are more, there's more meat in those five words right there than there are in all the steakhouses of Washington, D.C. I mean, there's so much in these just five words when you properly understand them. See, Paul's concern before was a kind of works-based salvation which would describe empty religion and the religion of everyone and anything that is not the Christian gospel. You could put the whole world's religions into two camps. One, that those that have to work for it and those that receive it by grace. And so here he brings the contrast into view by highlighting one of the chief doctrines of the Christian faith, namely grace. Grace. See, friends, if you don't understand the role of grace in the gospel, then you very possibly don't understand the gospel. If you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand Christianity. Now, to be clear, the word grace is nowhere in that sentence, but it's the whole point of his words. See, what Paul is saying here is that the only, only the truly circumcised, the true Christian, they worship not by works, but only by the Spirit of God. That's what he said there in verse 3. 
I mean, just go back, go back just a few paragraphs. This is exactly what Paul said earlier. Chapter 2, verse 12. We work out our salvation, but that is only because, verse 13, God has willed and worked in us for his good pleasure. So we can only work out our salvation because God worked it in us by his grace in Christ through the Spirit. That's the only way that happens. Or maybe if we can, I'm going to have you do a little jumping around this morning. So maybe an even more clear picture of this idea of grace-fueled righteousness that comes by the Spirit of God would be in Titus chapter 3. If you can flip over to Titus chapter 3, that's going to be to the right. So uh, if you keep in mind, by the way, when you're reading the Scriptures, a good way to think about it is every time Paul's epistles start, they start with the longest one and they go to the shortest one. Titus is short, so it's going to be towards the back of Paul's epistles. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. This is a clear way, a clear understanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. Namely, you're going to notice how he's working against this idea of workspace, against that, and for grace-based salvation by the work of Christ as applied by the Spirit of God. Listen to what he says in Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we used to be in Christ, outside of Christ. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, note those next three words. He saved us. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Titus, a Christian. He saved us. We didn't save us. He saved us. And here comes that contrast again. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. No, 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 no. But according to his own mercy. Well, how did that happen? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal. There's the same words again. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. He didn't just give us a bit. He gave us richly through Jesus Christ, had to have the atoning sacrifice of Christ, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, how? By His, what's the word there? Grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look out for false gospels, beloved. And look to the true gospel. Wherein we who were fools, disobedient, slaves, all kinds of passions, dead in our sins. God woke us up and saved us. Not because we did anything to merit it. Nothing to merit it. Nothing to earn it. Not because we believed and not even because we believed and did some religious activity. No, it was and is all of Christ. He did it on the cross and that work was applied to us by the Spirit. And this, friends, is the grace of of God. This is our chief doctrine. We are not saved by faith. Do you hear me? Wait, they, they, you just are you, you beware of false gospels. Is that a false gospel? That's right. We're not saved by faith. Someone asked you, how are you saved? I'm not saved by faith. I'm saved by Jesus Christ. That's how I'm saved. I'm saved by Jesus Christ. Faith is the apprehension that takes hold of that. And that faith is a gift of God itself. We are saved by Jesus Christ as his life, death, and resurrection is applied to us by the Spirit of God. Going back into Philippians. Go look back over there and keep your eyes on Philippians. Christ then, friends. Christ, Christ, we find that the grace of God in Christ through the Spirit is the way that we worship. That's how we come to properly worship. It was the grace of God in Christ Jesus 
through the Spirit then that causes us to worship. So Christ did not die for the possibility of salvation. No, Christ, His death on the cross accomplished redemption. It accomplished it. It finished it. The cross of Christ effected salvation, which is why Jesus says what? It is finished. It's done. It's purchased. It's locked for those that believe. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done. He's done it all on the cross. This is why we sing that strange language of being washed by the blood, poured in by the blood. Because it's the blood we find. It's the blood that causes us to be born again. It alone is the thing that causes us to be justified. So the work of righteousness is done. Christ has done it all. We who are in Christ merely receive the benefits of justification by no work of our own, but only by receiving it in faith as it is given to us by the Spirit of God. That familiar passage so many of you know. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved. Grace means unmerited favor. You get something you do not deserve. If you could actually work towards it, that would mean you would deserve it, which takes away grace. So by grace, grace, just receiving something you did not deserve, by grace you, the Christians, have been saved through the vessel of faith. And this is not your own doing. So the faith and the salvation is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. And then to be clear, not a result of works so that no man may boast. 100% life, friends. 100% life given to people that were 100% dead rebels by 100% of the grace of God. Amen? This is such good news. So the cross wasn't a down payment on righteousness that you and I have to finish paying off by our religion. So important that you understand that. And, there, and so often we feel that way, don't we? The cross was not a down payment on righteousness that you and I have to finish paying off by showing up to church every Sunday. Reading your Bible enough or memorizing enough. Christ has completed. He has finished it. He is done. That is where our righteousness is. If you are in Christ, your worship is not done by anything you've done. Not, you've done nothing to merit it. It is only by the grace of God as it is given to you by the Spirit of God. Paul says there, verse 3, so the call of external circumcision, that's what Paul's writing against here. The call of external circumcision was never meant to affect justification in any way. It was to direct them to be circumcised in the heart. That was always God's intention and the call to be circumcised, that they would be circumcised of the heart. Go back this afternoon and after you finished reading through Genesis 17, thinking about circumcision, just go back and just Google in Bible Gateway or something like that, circumcision of the heart. See how many times it comes up in the Old Testament. This is what God is after. He was always after the circumcision of the heart. That external circumcision was to point to the need for internal circumcision. That's exactly what Paul says, for instance, in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That's the external circumcision. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. That is, the people of God are those that are ones inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Note the words again. By the what? By the Spirit. Not by the letter. Not by performing something. So the Gospel is that God has to do heart surgery through His applying the work of His Son by the Spirit. 
No human being can exert or produce that in any way. It's got to be entirely given by gracious God. And so, guys, can you see why Paul is so careful in protecting the clarity of this gospel? You add any amount of works to the equation here. You diminish the sufficiency of the gospel and you impugn the character of God. The gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news of a gracious God that has accomplished everything for His people though they did nothing to deserve it. How are we saved? That is, how is it we come to worship? Paul's trying to answer here. Not by any amount of works on our own, but by the Spirit of God applying the righteousness of the Son of God as He was sent by the Father God through our faith, through our believing. Now that's amazing. We could end right there and just sing hallelujah, right? But why has God done this? Why would He choose to do this? Look there again at verse 3. He answers it for us. That we might glory or rejoice or magnify or exalt or praise or honor or lift up Christ Jesus. That's why. We who are the true Christians, true believers, the true circumcision, the circumcision as he says, we worship how? By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That's verse 3. So true regeneration leads to worship and glory in Christ Jesus. So if the gospel you believe in does not lead you to the ultimate reward of glorying in Christ Jesus, then you may not understand the gospel. If the gospel is just a nice benefits package for you when you die, or if the gospel is just a good insurance package for you, or if the gospel is just a kind of, you know, uh, better of two options for when you die, then it's very possible you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God giving life to dead rebels so that we can do the very thing that we were made to do, namely to worship or to glory in Christ Jesus. To magnify Him. And if we remember way back in chapter 1, verse 20, I think it was, that's exactly what Paul wants to do. Magnify the glory of Christ. Magnify Him. That's what our Christianity is about. It's not just a benefits package for us. It's about glorying in Christ. The gospel is that good news that causes us, allows us, uh, makes it possible for us to do the thing we were made to do. Worship, glory, have great joy in. Some of your translations may say that. Take the word glory and make it joy or rejoice in Christ Jesus. Do you all remember that Christmas day when the angels sang? That's exactly what they did. I bring you good news of what? Great joy, which shall be for all the people, that unto you is born a Savior. He's the one that does the saving. For unto you is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then they worship, right? They sang. The angels gloried or worshipped that night. And that's what we who are in Christ do too. That's what we do. That's what we, our hearts ought to long to be doing. Worship. The risen Savior. So the reality is, folks, all of us worship something. We can't help but worship. Even the atheist, the agnostic worships. The question is, what or who do you worship? Whatever you worship, that's what you're becoming. Those who are circumcised of the heart by the Spirit of God live to glory or worship Christ. 
And so this is why our mission statement here at Restoration Church reads that we exist to make disciples that do what? That. We exist to delight, to worship, to praise, to magnify, to glory in the supremacy of Christ. And there's nothing, there ought to be nothing about that mission statement that is novel. All right? There should be nothing novel about that. Oh, how novel of Restoration Church to think of that. No. That should be very, very familiar to you. Right? Very, very old, right? We tend to value the new, the novel, and the latest and the greatest. But the gospel-believing churches know that we don't need novelty. We need the excellency of that old rugged cross. That's it. That's what we need. Enlightenment and joy have never been found by blazing new trails, but by walking the old ones, worn down by the saints of old who have gone before us. And those old paths from those saints of old lead us to glory in Christ Jesus. Because it is only by Christ Jesus that we can come to glory at all. Were it not for the person and work of Christ on the cross, we would still be left in our sins. We would be dogs. We would be evildoers. We would be chasing after the wind. We would be lost to ourselves. We'd be left to try to find meaning in ourselves. See, friends, generation after generation passes and each one tries to cast off the old in favor of the new in an effort to make sense of their lives and to try to make the world better. And yet, with the inventions and discoveries of each generation, we only innovate more layers of the same problem of that which is common to man. And it comes and in comes the redeemed in the face of that. In comes the redeemed, ransomed by the blood of Christ, often poor and ignored by the world, but not by God. And in they come with smiles on their faces, though there may be little food in the cupboard and callousness on their knees. And you say, why does those redeemed smile in light of such circumstances? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they, though outwardly they may be wasting away, inwardly they are being renewed day by day. They are on a journey, the redeemed are. They are on a journey home to their everlasting reward. And they know that they've done nothing to deserve it, everything to lose it, and yet they continue to be loved by God. And so, Restoration Church, I charge you, rejoice in the Lord. You have been adopted to everlasting life. Glory in your Redeemer. And so then, lastly, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Don't put, you know, kind of most of your confidence, don't put it. No, put no, none, zero, zilch, no confidence in the flesh. Now, this should be obvious to us by now, what Paul, why Paul would say this to the church. Namely, if we contributed nothing but sin to our salvation, then we should not be confident in anything about ourselves. Instead, we should be completely confident in who? Christ. He did it all. And by the power of His Spirit, we then are awakened. That's where our confidence is. And so, as we are, as we look and have our confidence in Christ, not in ourselves, we are granted a freedom that this world can never know, but always longs for. A freedom that meets us where we are in all of our brokenness. And so you, friend, if you are despondent because of your sin, look up to Christ and His cross. Be encouraged. For you who are weary from working to gain praise and adulation, look up to Christ and His cross. Be encouraged. Have joy. For you who are so often governed by the ups and downs of your emotions, Look up to Christ and be governed by that positional reality. Look up to Christ and His cross. For you who are proud and confident in your own excess, repent and look up to Christ and be encouraged. 
For you who have labored so hard. I want you to hear this. I think Paul would really want to drive this application home. For you who have labored so hard to make yourself acceptable to God. Look to Christ. And find rest in Him. He has finished what you never could. That you never will. He is your righteousness. It's a great story of John Bunyan, the old tinker. It was walking around in a field in the 1600s that looked up and he said, I realized my heart sunk or it leapt or something like that when I realized that my righteousness was seated at the right hand of heaven. Not in him. I mean, it is in him, but only because it's in Christ, in him. So Restoration Church, rejoice in the Lord. By his infinite grace, God is for us. Therefore, we have nothing to fear, everything to hope in, even in our darkest trials. Heaven is just ahead on the other side of that hill over there. It's just on the other side. We will be there soon enough. We will look upon him of whom our soul loves, the one that we have complete confidence in, Christ our Lord. But until we get there, beloved, look out for false gospels. Look to the true gospel all of your days and glory in Christ Jesus our Lord who has accomplished for us all that we need for life and godliness. Let your confidence be there and rejoice no matter what may come that you have reason for rejoicing because Christ has accomplished your redemption on the cross. And for you that do not yet believe, I would encourage you to no longer think that you can perform righteousness. You can't. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Righteousness has already been performed by you. It's by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit that you can come to be perfectly righteous. Religion is empty. Righteousness is complete in Christ. Put your confidence in Him and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Oh God, these are amazing words. God, forgive us who are here this morning that hear this and they've heard it so many times, it's dull. God, that can be me sometimes. Enlighten our hearts' eyes. Just, by we are, just as we were saved by the Spirit of God, those that are saved, God, awaken our, the eyes of our heart to see this glorious reality that we're saved by the Spirit as the Spirit applies the work of Your Son on the cross as He was sent by You to bring about the glory of You and Your Son. And so, whatever it is we may be going through, whatever difficulty we may find ourselves in, whatever infighting, whatever arrogance, whatever hard time, God, cause our eyes to look and find joy in the cross of Christ. and Give us strength to move through those difficult times. And for those that do not yet believe, cause them to believe by your Spirit through faith. Apply, we pray, apply through your Spirit the justification of your Son on the cross. And we say, hallelujah, God, that Jesus has finished the work of righteousness. For all who believe, we confess that we cannot do it ourselves. And God, I pray that we would put no confidence in ourselves. We'd only put confidence in Jesus our hope, and our everlasting reward. We pray in His name. Amen.